Hello, Fried fans, and welcome to Season 4 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Donovan, and my mission with Fried is to hashtag end burnout culture. On this pod, we end burnout culture by sharing stories of people who have been through it all, sharing expert tips from the best in the burnout field, sharing hashtag straight from Kate episodes with my own expertise and some fun research now that I'm a student again, plus sharing actionable steps to help you end burnout starting today. If you're feeling burnt out right now and you need personalized guidance, you can book a free breakthrough burnout call with me. You'll find the link bit.ly backslash call Kate in the show notes. Also, if you love fried and want to be part of our community, we'd love to have you. Just head over to Facebook and type in fried the burnout podcast discussion and click to join our group. It's a place for continued healing, deeper conversations and connections with people who just get it. And now for this week's episode. Hello, Fried fans. Welcome back to another episode of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. Today, I'm talking to fellow burnout expert, fellow burnout author, fellow burnout coach, fellow nature lover, Sally Clark. And Sally, after burning out as a finance lawyer, she ran her own copywriting and translation business while teaching yoga and meditation around the globe. Her mission today is to fight for burnout prevention in organizations and societies and help individuals empower themselves to prevent burnout and live authentically. Sally also surfs, talks and laughs with friends, hikes, 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 I don't know what that means, eats tacos and travels. Australian born, Sally has lived on four continents. I'm only up to three, so Sally's got me beat by one. And she is currently based in the Netherlands or Holland, for those of you who don't know what the Netherlands are, because I know that that can be confusing. That's the same place. Amsterdam. Got it? Are we with it? Let's introduce Sally. Sally, welcome to the show. So good to be here, Kay. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Sally and I had a conversation almost two years ago now. Ooh, yeah, a year and a half, I think, when I was in California. Yeah. 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 So a year and a half, two years ago, Sally got in touch with me and, and interviewed me for um, an article that you put out, right? That was in Medium or Thrive Global or or one of those. I don't remember. No, it was on my, on my Medium page. Yeah. Medium page, yeah reached out and I was so thrilled that you got back to me because you're such a leading voice in burnout. It was so fun. So awesome. And at the time, Sally was in uh, California in a place that I had previously lived. So previously lived. So we had this like just we just had a fun, easy, great conversation. And so I'm excited to sort of continue that relationship right now. And as per usual, we start all fried episodes that have guests with your burnout story. So I'm going to step back, give you the stage and see where this goes. Thanks, Kate. So I think like all burnout stories, uh, it starts many, many years ago. The origins of my burnout start probably when I was a kid, but um, in around uh, 2007, I was working as a finance lawyer in uh, Amsterdam at one of Europe's top tier law firms. And um, I'd studied law in Australia, but I've never actually really been particularly passionate about pursuing law. I'd had jobs in different fields, um, but this job kind of landed in my lap and I felt a lot of pressure to take it and to really go with it. It's super prestigious, really huge opportunity. That's when, you know, graduates from Oxford and Cambridge will fight for these roles and it was just black, it was there for me. So I'm like, I have to make the most of this. Um, 
I remember uh, when I was signing the contract, the uh, HR lady said, um, so you'll notice that there's 40 hours in your contract, but you'll actually be expected to work a lot more than that per week and you won't be remunerated. And I was just on cloud nine. It was all, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You could have said anything and I would have signed that contract at that time. So it was very, uh, it felt really validating, but also um, really quite scary, I think, because this was something that was so, so sought after that I really felt a lot of pressure to make it work. So about six months later into the, into the role, and I was already working probably 60 to 65 hours a week. Um, and I uh, was crying regularly at my desk. I was feeling a lot of pressure. Um, I was, it was a Friday evening and I was meant to be moving in with my boyfriend the next day. And he'd been busy like painting our apartment, fixing things up. I hadn't done anything. I was completely immersed in my work and um, it was about eight o'clock and the the partner at the law firm came into my office and said look uh, do you have capacity which basically means I have something for you to do doesn't matter if you can do it or not just you're doing this um, and when he left my office I really had a moment of real sort of shell shock a real kind of realization of like I'm so unhappy this is really making me unhappy I am not enjoying this work but um at that moment and for the two years after that I suppressed those feelings I really shoved that aside and and kept on keeping on so I was averaging probably around 65 to 70 hours per week um eventually my relationship really deteriorated some friendships started to kind of wane because I was just working uh every weeknight and often through weekends um and then at the start of 2010 I was another Friday night I was again at the office and I was scheduled to get a late flight to Nantes in France to visit my brother who was doing a postdoc there and I was sort of like trying to get all my work done, get everything off my desk. And I ran, got a, a taxi, dove into it, went to the airport. I was running to the gate. I tripped and I fell and I, I cut my knee. And I only realized I was bleeding when the attendant on the flight pointed it out to me. I sat down in the seat and, and honestly, I don't remember anything about the flight. Uh, I don't remember getting a band-aid or anything for my knee. I don't remember arriving at Nantes. I just remember walking out and laying eyes on my brother and collapsing to the floor at the arrivals area of Nantes Airport at about 11.30 at night. And I think what happened was it took me seeing my closest relative um, and having this real realisation. It was like my body was caving in underneath me and giving me the message that if I continued to do what I was doing, it was tantamount to killing myself. There's a real, I think my body had been, by that point, my body had been trying to send me desperate signals for years <laughs> in increasing kind of uh, intensity, but it took that real intensity to, for me to really uh, accept that something was very, very wrong and things really needed to change. And those were things that I was desperate not to have to confront. Mm. In the week so scary. Up, it, it was, it was really... Yeah, it really went, my whole identity felt sort of ripped out from me. If I'm not this, who am I? And if I fail at, at, at this, what's left of my worth? It was a really deep 
um, I'd really attached my entire self-worth basically to being successful in this job that I hated. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> um, you know, and it's one of those things in retrospect, I'm in re- you know, far in retrospect, I'm really grateful for the fact that I had that intense experience. I'm also very grateful for the fact that I was in a privileged enough position that I had few financial responsibilities and I could make the decision to quit. So the Tuesday after I went back to the office after that weekend, I uh, talked to my manager and said, I'm not happy. And he responded, well, none of us are. <laughs> we laughed. <laughs> and then I said, yeah, but I'm going to do something about it. Um, again, I was lucky enough to be in the Netherlands where there is a legal infrastructure for people who experience burnout. And I was able to take advantage of that by taking a little bit of time off and continuing to work while I contemplated options spoke to a coach, uh, got into some therapy, and it quickly made the decision that that I didn't want to be a corporate finance lawyer uh, and within about four months I'd finished work at that law firm and have never looked back. <laughs> Sweet relief. Yeah. Sweet relief. So one of the things that you said was, and this is something that we confront a lot on this show, that if I'm not this then who am I? If I don't do this, do I have value? If I am not this, do I have worth? Who am I am and, and, and am I valuable without all of this? And this is something that comes up so frequently. Like when I first said those words out loud, I was on somebody else's podcast and the response was like, <gasps> you know, it was like this really extreme thing. I don't even react to those words anymore because I hear them all the time. And when you say them, when you experience that for yourself, there's, I think, a level of almost existential questioning that creates a really strong feeling of almost terror. It's like, who am I almost existentially without this job defining me? Uh, And particularly at that point in burnout where I had a lot of other relationships had deteriorated and a lot of my hobbies you know, all these other ways that I had once potentially defined myself or, or created a sense of worth, they'd all gone. I'd thrown them on the, you know, out the window because all that mattered was being the successful lawyer. So it's a, it's one of the, when I hear clients say those kind of things and it, it pretty much everyone does have some story, you know, something along those lines. I really feel that, that that kind of terror and I think I also really I honor that someone has got to that point of actually being willing to confront it because the denial is much cushier denials denials fun compared to really acknowledging the severity of what we're going through just how about you dig into that a little bit more denial is more fun <laughs> than facing it well I think for me denial I was I mean I was a pain in the butt for starters, when I was in burnout, I was snarky. I was uh, extremely self-righteous. Um, if my partner made any comment about how maybe you want to, you know, cut back the hours or is it really necessary to be on that conference call at 10.30 on a Tuesday night, uh, I would, you know, get all self-righteous. You don't know what it's like to be a corporate lawyer. I have all these responsibilities And that kind of self-righteousness, I think, was the kind of comfort zone that I was in and that made denial kind of like uh, no one one understands me. I am alone in this mission and I have to, it was kind of a, um, yeah, it was kind of, it was both, it was both isolating and really comforting, which is, sounds really odd. Um, 
but it took like I think it actually took some some courage it does take some courage to actually confront the fact that we have been that uh misguided and and being you know right off the path and uh when any whenever anyone would tell me the things that were actually true and that I really didn't want to admit then I'd be on my soapbox getting all self-righteous <laughs> Self-righteous was a really big part of my burnout story too. It was like, don't you understand how busy I am? Don't you understand how needed mm. I am? So important. And so I'm important. so important. Mm. <clears throat> and that need to push through this idea of my own importance was sort of rooted in this worry that I wasn't valuable. I said, so I've proven I've proven that I'm valuable here because people want me, people need me, people will pay for me. That means it's proven on the outside. Like I don't need to, I don't need to find it within myself because. Yeah. I have the business card from your top law firm with my name on it. Like done, buddy. I'm, I'm it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Ignoring the fact that the day in it, like the day to day, the minute to minute experience of doing that was shredding my soul. Yeah. But to me, that was less important than that bloody business card. Yeah. Yeah. So not being aware of your own value Mm -hmm. leaves you at risk for creating your importance out of external factors. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is something that I speak to in my book, um, in the ways that, that we as individuals, the steps that we can take to try to empower ourselves against burnout. Uh, and it's not, I think the thing is with burnout for a lot of us, um, you know, looking back, it's really difficult to imagine what it would have taken, particularly once I was on the trajectory and I was starting to show some of the symptoms and I was starting to, I was, I really bought into my own narrative about how important I was and how, you, you know, how, how I had to keep doing this. But uh, in my book, I, I sort of set out some ideas around, you know, if we're going to prevent burnout as individuals, because we can't, we can't wait for the whole system to change uh, right now. You know, that's going to take decades if we're lucky. <laughs> what we can do is empower ourselves right now today. So part of that and the sort of the first aspect, I think, is what I call uh, self-compassion And that's really driven by really tapping into a sense of intrinsic worth in ourselves. Not all of us have grown up with that. Not all of us have had that reinforced from an early stage. So for a lot of us, including myself, that was something that I have had to actively work on. And that's happened since I burnt out. It sort of took that that low for me to get to a point where I really, in some ways it felt like I hadn't had no option but to start to look within and find that intrinsic value in myself because once we have that, that's when we can actually start to draw boundaries and say no to things and push back because we, by the very fact of our existence and our breathing and being here, have value. I think that's a really important thing, particularly uh, not to minimise the issues that men face, but I think particularly for women, this can be a, a really tough one in the corporate environment and as entrepreneurs to really... Well, yeah, of course. I mean, for 2,000 years, we've been told that we are other people's property, that we have value only when we're attached to a man. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's going to take a little while to unwind, friends. (laughs) We were a chattel that was passed from father to husband, absolutely. Well, and we still, there's still so many of us that participate in those systems. Like one of the things that when I was getting married, um, first of all, my husband has a really difficult to pronounce last name. He's Polish and it's just, it's just doesn't work. Um, (laughs) but second of all, I never really imagined changing my name. Of course, when I was in seventh grade, I would write like Caitlin, whatever boy's name I had a crush on that week, you know, in my notebooks, like obviously, because that's so, that's how deeply ingrained it is. It is in our culture. But when I was actually getting married, I looked at my husband and I was like, um, by the way, I'm not doing that. And he was like, Uh of course not. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank God. God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. Because I, I don't want to really play that game. And so we got married in a, we didn't get married in a religious ceremony because neither of us are religious. We didn't want to participate in that. So we got mm-hmm. married in a civil ceremony. And so there was no giving away. Mm-hmm. Right. There was none of there. That didn't yeah. happen because that wasn't a thing. Passing of property. <laughs> yeah. Like that didn't happen. So, yeah. so I was really lucky that um, some of those things happened, not because I planned for them to not happen, but just because they weren't part of my experience because of where I was getting married and all that. But there's everything that we go through is so deeply centered in the fact that we are valuable when we are enhancing a man's life. Mm, yeah. Right. So it's this is really hard for women, I think, to have this intrinsic value. So in and for people that don't know the word intrinsic, it just simply means that you have value because you exist. You exist, yeah. therefore you have value. That's it. It's inside of you already. It doesn't come intrinsic means it's inside of you. It doesn't come from the outside of you. So for exactly. me personally. I will tell you that creating this intrinsic value was an, uh, partially an external job. So I, I, there's a lot of like, and if this is your thing, then I'm, I'm going to squash it right now. So sorry. So I apologize in advance if I'm squashing your thing, but I, I think I know you better than that. And I don't think I am. Um, mm. I do not believe in the adage. You must love yourself first for anyone else to love. Oh, you. Yeah. Totally I, I don't believe in that adage at all because I was taught that I had intrinsic value and that I could still mess up and still be loved by a best friend mm. when I really, really fucked something up and was forgiven for it. Yeah. And she said, I love you anyway, in spite of your flaws. I know who you are underneath all of that. And Absolutely. I love you anyway. And that was what started my journey. So now you're saying that you need people to sort of have this self-compassion and to understand they have intrinsic value. But how do people get from my value only comes from what's outside of me to my value comes from inside of me? Exactly. And that is a process. I think one of the things that really became clear to me during the writing of this book and just generally in life, I think in this phase is we have this uh obsession with sort of instant gratification we want things to change and we want to like flick a switch and being uh intrinsic value done and now the rest of my life I don't have to worry about that that's just the baseline and unfortunately life you know that's not how intrinsic that's how not how almost anything of value works it's a process it is something that we have to work on actively that we have to cultivate every day. One thing I will say is after, you know, 10 years of doing a lot of work on this is something that becomes more natural with time and, 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 and easier. But I fully agree that I think it's it's almost like the difference, you know, we have 
this idea that um, when I am perfect, then I can date and meet someone that I'll love. Or when I lose that amount of weight, then I'll feel happy with myself. We make these look conditional on A, things in the future, and B, external factors. So by doing exactly what you spoke to, I think using an example, like experiencing love from other people and seeing how other people can treat us with kindness and compassion, these are really helpful lessons in how we can start to treat ourselves. And I think, you know, having worked with a coach and several therapists over the years myself, I feel like that work as well. I mean, it's obvious as a coach, I'm going to promote coaching because I really believe in it because it's what I do. However, from personal experience, working with someone can see, you know, you will, what you could achieve in a decade by yourself, you can achieve in six months with the right person. You can fast track some of that stuff. And that doesn't mean perfection in six months and that you never have to work on it again, but it can help you thread some insights together in a way that really helps you drop some of that narrative of I'm not worthy or I have to do X, Y, and Z, or I need to behave in these different ways. And also just becoming more aware of the cultural, uh, you know, the cultural shit that we're fighting against when we do this, that it is, it's not some kind of like perfect, even baseline. It's not equal for everyone. Everyone has their own struggles and their own uh, challenges, their own crap that they're carrying that they have to work through. All of this, I think, can tie into allowing ourselves to really feel, and and I'd go so far as to call it a fierce self-compassion, and this is something that Dr. Kristen Neff also talks about, um, where it's, 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 this is not self-compassion where we're just patting ourselves on the head and going, you're a, you know, don't change your thing, you're perfect. It's not about, I think a lot of people are also sort of afraid of like, if I'm really compassionate with myself, will I ever do anything ever again? Or will I just lie in bed and eat? Uh, chocolate I mean uh, yeah and tempting but (laughs) but I think what we're seeing like what I mean by fierce compassion is this is not about giving up this is about treating ourselves with tenderness and kindness and the love that we intrinsically deserve and it's you know it's not something that we nail immediately and everything's fine forever after what does happen and what research shows is that when we when we are self-compassionate we don't actually become lazy we don't become so light on ourselves that we never do anything again. We we actually become more creative. We become more connected with other people. We tend to become more present and have and actually experience more joy in our day-to-day because we are doing all of those things. So it's a really important um, and worthwhile I think, sort of foundation. And like I said, you don't late in one day and you're done. It's a, something that you that you work on every day. Um, that really can fortify us, I think, and, and, and empower us in that fierce way against things like burnout and to be, for us to be able to identify the chronic stress uh, that causes burnout. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the actual exercises that I give people to work on increasing their own internal sense of value is a, is a simple slash hard one. And it is start noticing your preferences. Mm, As simple as that. You don't even have to get your preferences. You don't Uh have to force everybody suddenly to do the things that you want to do all the time. You can still compromise on things, but start 
noticing what your preference is slash would have been in a certain situation. So when your you know, partner says, hey, I would love to go for Italian tonight, and your initial reaction in your mind is like, ugh, fine. And you don't actually take the time to think about what you would have preferred. Mm. You're not giving yourself the freedom to feel like your voice matters. And it doesn't even mean that when you decide what you prefer, you have to say anything about it. You can, but you Mm -hmm. don't have to. But you do have to know yourself well enough to actually stop and think, oh, he just stopped and said he wanted Italian. Like he was so clear on that. What do I want? And what you'll find is in the beginning, you probably don't know. Mm-hmm. Because you have spent so long not asking yourself about your own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. I always yeah. put those together. Wants, needs, desires, preferences to me are, are one conglomerate yeah. of, of yeah. Um, aspects. When you don't ask yourself what they are and you don't know what they are, you cannot meet them. You can't get them sometimes even if you only get them some because none of us gets everything that we want need desire and prefer all the time that's just not reasonable we live in communities and there's always going to be some sort of compromise but you can't get it ever if you don't know what it is I, I love that and I think that's like when you were saying that the thing that comes up in me is I think historically and this is like what I learned as a as a kid watching my you know some female role models was like if uh I'm the guy would say, well, I, I feel like Italian. My, my initial reaction is like, is like deer in the headlights. I'm like, I can't even connect with deer in the headlights. Oh, I guess so. And then like maybe an hour later, I'll be like, I really don't feel like it. But you know, it's, there are worse things. So he wants Italian, like, and having, I think the psych always says there's, there's two steps there. I think you identified. It's like, it's, it's, you know, noticing what is my desire? What's my preference in this moment? Is it a really strong one? You know, then choosing what to do with it. Yeah. But I think taking some time to just experiment, even in really small ways with what is my reaction here? Um, and this kind of ties in, I think. So again, in the, in the book, we have self-compassion, you know, self-knowledge, which is more about kind of knowing intrinsically who we are, what our values are, what our needs and desires are. Yeah. And then self-awareness. So there's these three aspects. And the self-awareness aspect is about tuning in through our bodily signals, by tuning into what, you know, really matters to us and being able to, uh, to observe, you know, what's going on in my body. Do I feel like, do I feel like something else? Is this right for me? Is this wrong for me? And I think that's, that's something that it's, uh, not all of us have been, you know, brought up with those skills, but, and they are something, and it, it, it's a lifelong process. Certainly for me, I am falling down and getting up and falling down and getting up. But it's such a valuable experience. Uh, it's almost like I think, particularly since I had my burnout. You know, I was I was quite disconnected. I was a very I was brought up in a very intellectual family. Family. My brother's a math professor. My I was scientist, geologist. It's all very sort of intellectually driven. And um, I think it's no coincidence that I went and did a te- sorry a yoga teacher training after I burned out because I was kind of like, hmm, my body. What is that? What, what what's that about? Yeah. Uh, and it's been such an interesting process to uh, to really start to tune into to my body and the skills that I just never I'd never really had previous to that. Yeah. 
And that kind of, I think that kind of awareness, being able to tune in the moment to what's going on in my body also then teaches me to be able to tune into what the little signals are, uh, emotions um, about yeah. uh, what I'm feeling and what my needs are too. Yeah, but even on the physical level, what your needs are really important. This is something that comes up on the show a lot, but I think that we it, it needs to be constantly repeated. Drink when you're thirsty, pee when you have to the pee. Mm-hmm. You know, like open the window when you're hot. Like do the things respond respond. to the things that your body is telling you this is another way that you build that self-compassion and that feeling of value because when you say when you're sitting here and you're like damn I'm thirsty but I'm on this show and I can't ask her to pause and I can't and you don't stop to go get a glass of water what you're saying is I don't deserve a glass of water right now exactly right yeah that need doesn't matter. I don't that matter. Need, right. And yeah. so I joke with people pretty often, and I've laughed on, about this on the podcast a lot. Like one of my initial rules when I work with somebody is like, I want you to pee every time you need to pee. Mm-hmm. And people are like, I do. And I'm like, I, I promise you don't. <laughs> I promise you don't. I promise you hold it be, to write that one last email. Mm. Yeah. Or to not be 90 seconds late for that one phone call. Yeah. It doesn't even take you 90 seconds to pee, by the way. You'll you'll make it to the phone call. 100%. 100%. I have had to, and I know in myself, I have had to go to the bathroom 10 minutes before a phone call and been like, I don't have time. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, if you go, you're still like nine and a half minutes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, now maybe nine minutes because now it takes, you know, 20 full seconds to wash your hands. Of course, you got to say happy birthday twice. Yeah, I think that's something... These are things that we, and it's, you know, it's something that having lived in different places as well. So I've lived in Morocco, I lived in the south of Portugal for a while. Um, and living in these different sort of environments have really made me aware of how, uh, how much uh, pressure and busyness can be a part of, we can sort of take it on from our environment almost without even noticing. Um, and that's shifted, I think, to some extent during the pandemic in terms of for a lot of people in all kinds of different directions, whether it's much more intense and busy if you're working in healthcare or if it's sort of, you know, tumbleweeds rolling down the street if you if you're not. Um, but sort of being aware of that 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 pressure, that external pressure to be busy and to stay busy, that we very quickly, I think, internalize in our culture, that we quickly have this idea of if I'm not productive, again, I don't have worth. If I'm not uh, optimizing my day if I'm not uh, managing my time correctly and I'm not saying that there's no value in you know I'm I'm a reformed control freak <laughs> and <laughs> I I get like the satisfaction that I can get out of writing a certain amount of words a day or or ticking off a few things on my to-do list and I allow myself those things because I'm a human being and that's just that is that is fine the, the the issue is when it switches from that kind of like meeting that need as a, as a kind of a kindness to myself as a human to a dogmatic, if I don't do that, then I'm, I'm a bad person. Or if I don't do that, then I'm a, I've failed today and, and it was a waste of time. You're really getting down on myself in that way. And I think there's a lot of messaging and this kind of ties into what I write about in the book as well in terms of causes of burnout, um, some of the unhealthy work cultures that we are exposed to that really uh exploit these ideas um and and make it really easy for us to tend towards burnout because we we're uh 
competing against sort of, you know, all these people either within the company or other, or other entrepreneurs if we're working for ourselves. There's all kinds of different ways that these uh, unhealthy work cultures can manifest. But I think it's driven a lot by media, it's driven a lot by social media, and it's something that even uh, even the most resilient of us in terms of uh, self-compassion and self-worth can sometimes can sometimes wobble and sometimes struggle with. Yeah, I get caught up in it. And if you, I mean, I don't know what the the top 10 Australian cultural values are, but I know that in the top 10 American values, we have two that are really fucked up. And one of them is hard work. And the mm-hmm. other one is individualism. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's yeah. And I think that it's interesting that you sort of like compare cultures. Cause I think there is, there are some subtle differences based on yeah. the, the countries that I've lived in and that, that yeah. to some extent, but it is, and, uh, you know, having lived in the States and done a lot of research into burnout, particularly from a U.S. perspective, uh, it's there's that there's that sort of cultural imperative also that the rest is is lazy, if not sinful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, combined with then with like, a, um, you know, sort of you know, very little sort of infrastructure from the government to sort of look after people in terms of yeah. um, whether you care, social security, exactly. Or All even your notice period, you know, in the Netherlands, yeah. the baseline uh, law in the Netherlands is that for a, a company, they have to give you three months notice Yeah, and you have to give them one month's notice. So you have three months. Okay. You're, you're fine, but you have three months on full pay yeah. to sort of get, get on your feet and start looking for something else. That's not a super long time. And you do, that does go over into, into some benefits after that, but it's those kind of protections yeah. that enable people to feel a little more secure and a little more you know, safe in their work environment. And those, again, are things that, that can help um, help mitigate burnout. Yeah, American culture does not have a lot of safety built into it. It is do or die. It's exactly. It's almost like it's like it's strategically designed to keep us insecure, fearful, competitive, yeah. Yeah. consuming. Yeah. Uh, I will I will save my anti-capitalist rant from, from right there. <laughs> <laughs> but what but I this is something that I actually in the growing your self-awareness chapter in your book, I highlighted this because um, this is something that I hear from people all the time when I get on sort of these initial discovery calls. They're like, I need a coach. I need some accountability. And I'm like, well, accountability for what? And the response ends up being, well, I just need to get back to being able to do as much as I was able to do before. And I'm always like, um, that can't be our goal. <laughs> like, yeah, we need no. to talk about that. And, and what you wrote in your book was this. If your motivation for doing these practices, i.e. the practices around self-compassion, self-awareness, et cetera, is so that you can do more, achieve more, squish more in, or hack your systems to somehow sidestep burnout, it will not work. And then you followed it up with, I mean it, it will not work. If you think you can outsmart burnout, burnout will prove you wrong. I speak from experience and extensive research. It is something that I, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I know in our conversation uh, a couple of years ago that we talked about how uh, burnout prevention to some extent can feel quite theoretical because once we are, when we have a kind of, uh, when we have low or no self-value, when we've once we've attached ourselves to our career in a way that's that's fundamentally unhealthy and that environment is perhaps one that is likely to take advantage of us it uh, you know it can become very difficult to, to to stop that that trajectory from happening part of the reason is the 
physical and physiological impact of burnout because we become exhausted. Our perspective, we drop our perspective, we become incapable of of taking that step back and going and making healthy choices for ourselves because we're simply worn down. So it's, uh, however, I, you know, I, I kind of think I've come from this perspective of like, there's you just can't prevent burnout. You just sort of let it happen. I don't really, I didn't like that idea because I'm, I'm quite sort of vehemently anti victimhood. I'm like, I'm a, you know, I'm all about it. I'm about empowerment and about seeing where we have agency in our lives so I feel like as much as, you know, I, as much as not everyone, I can't stop everyone from burning out, but the intention of the book is basically what I, in 2007, 2008, maybe if I'd read it, there could have been a couple of things that would have stuck out and maybe shifted my perspective just in a couple of key ways that might've helped me make even just slightly different decisions that could have prevented me from going that that deep into into burnout, and that's certainly what I hope for for readers. Would you have read it at that point? This is the question. <laughs> I, this, this is what's always said: two thousand seven, two thousand eight, maybe two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Hell no! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. The, there was that you know the the, the shift to full self righteousness. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly when that <laughs> happened. <laughs> but, yeah, and I think, like, as we discussed, it was that at a certain point, you just don't want to know. You, you yeah. don't want to be confronted with those facts, so you avoid the books that you that will help you or the coaching yeah. that might help you until there is literally no other choice. Right. My biggest issue with um, burnout prevention is that there is, within that, this sort of idea that if you do enough, you can avoid it. And I don't. The reason I don't believe that's true, I, I still think you should do live a life as best as you can in order to not burn out, just like I think you should live a life as best as you can to not get heart disease or cancer. But you might end up getting heart disease or cancer or burnout anyway. To me, burnout is just simply another disease process that mm-hmm. has both internal and external factors that we don't always have 100% control over. So while I'm also not a fan of victimhood, sometimes you get heart disease and sometimes you get burnout. Absolutely. You know, and no matter how much preventative work you do, like we all know the story of the person that like went vegan, exercised every week, like oh, yeah. did, lived an anti-cancer lifestyle and then died of lung cancer, even though they never smoke. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Absolutely. And I think this is why, I mean, I, I say it repeatedly in the book as well, that burnout is not your fault. Yeah. Burnout is caused by chronic workplace stress. According to the World Health Organization, there are other factors I think at play as well, but burnout is not your fault. And the most important thing I think that people who are in burnout or close to it need to know is to take that layer of shame yeah. and guilt off of themselves by expecting that they could have somehow outsmarted burnout. Right. right. It's it is it's it is that insidious and it's that nasty. And yeah. I okay, every single client I work with, like we we're talking some really freaking smart people. None of these they they there's it's not a matter of not working hard enough. Mm-mm not looking after themselves, you know, they know all the, all the, all the shit that we're meant to know and they do it. So you're absolutely right. It's not about, um, it, it's not necessarily something that we can always prevent. I think, uh, perhaps at best, at least for me, we can prevent it maybe happening again. Yes. Maybe not. 
that you know that's that's also something I, I there's no guarantees if you burn out once we've talked about this as well you can yeah. totally burn out again it's yeah. this is where it's I think you know where there's an opportunity perhaps is, is is burning out once we can take that for me it was a huge life lesson yeah. this is how I want my life to change this I really need to reappraise a lot of things a lot of values in my life um and take steps active steps and, you know, I come from, again, like an intellectual background. I'm a lawyer. I'm used to kind of like, and my comfort zone is reading a lot about stuff yeah, and same. then doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Love reading. I will highlight stuff and then assume that that's the work. Then I'm, I'm good now. Yeah, highlighted that whole book. <laughs> I feel like you just attacked me. <laughs> do you feel seen? I do. I do. <laughs> so... But so this has been, and again, I think partly, you know, the yoga teacher training, totally out of my comfort zone. I hated standing in lycra in front of a bunch of people and and I hate loved it because it also taught me so much about being vulnerable and being present and actually taking action rather than just hiding behind my computer or my book and my highlighter. So I think that's, that's one of the key things with burnout, whether it's prevention or working towards preventing it happening again, is really seeing that it's, it is active steps. It is, as is self-compassion, self-awareness and self-knowledge. These are active practices that yeah. we do uh, and we have to do um, every day. Like I said, I think it is something, This I still wobble, but if I look at a general trajectory over the last 10 years, I've become much better at being kind to myself and and, and being self-aware, setting and keeping boundaries. It's, you know, it's it's an it's an ongoing process. And I'm sure in you know 20 years I'll look back and go, oh my God, you know, <laughs> you knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that could happen. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that could happen. And I do think that that doing the preventative work, if you are aware enough to do that before you've burned out, will help you go through burnout easier. Yeah. That I believe in, just like I believe in, if you take care of your body well, and then suddenly you need a surgery, your body will handle it better because you are better prepared for it. The same same way. Almost like the prehab, you've got the prehab sort of facet there. Yes, yes. So exactly, the things I think like that I suggest, for example, as one of the the practices of self-awareness is to, um, you know, like patch your energy leaks or... Uh, make sure that you have a strong community around you. These are things that we can do at any point really in our lives. I mean, maybe not deep in burnout because we're just, bleh, but any other, you know, <laughs> any other point in your life, you can really, you know, nourish those connections that you have with people. You can identify the things that give you joy and meaning and make sure that you do them on a regular basis. That will absolutely, I think, empower you to, you know, your bounce back ability to be stronger uh, and faster for sure. Agreed. And so this book, Protect Your Spark, is more preventative, although there is some information in here that would definitely help you recover. But it says towards the end of the book that there's another book coming that's more about the actual recovery process. And I think what you said was it's coming a few weeks after this episode. So tell me about that. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Uh, yeah. So uh, Protect Your Spark is about um, pre- sort of burnout prevention, what we can do to avoid burnout. And Relight Your Spark 
is about once the deed is done, how do we, what are the steps that we can take to sort of build back and, and move forward? Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of talk, particularly recently, about um, post-traumatic growth and the correlation between that PTG and burnout that we can actually see post-burnout growth. I really see that a lot with clients, particularly people that I've worked with or have you know, worked with some years ago and I see where they are now. And in my own experience as well, um, it's one of those things that I'm a hideous experience at the time, but certainly <laughs> has given rise to a lot of growth for which I'm really grateful. So um, Relight Your Spark looks at the kind of four key steps to the, to take sort of initially once you're in that, that you know, you've not acknowledged where you are. It also speaks to um, some of the shame and and the guilt and the kind of the layers that we can put on top of burnout that can make it more difficult to to deal with. Um, so really working through those initial steps to get us back to a place where we can start to uh, start to grow again. Post burnout growth. Yeah, I like that. Mm. My life is so different because of post burnout growth. I, I, I absolutely I feel almost not evangelical about evangelical about it but I certainly feel you know when I look back at the honestly my life since burnout has been amazing and it's it hasn't been rainbows and unicorns it's there's been tough times too but when I look back and I see all of the things in my life that changed because I burned out all of those things that I changed in myself because I burned out and how my life has become so much more authentically my own, fun. Um, I think that I've brought a lot more presence to the day-to-day uh, that I simply didn't prior to burnout. And, I, again, like I would never wish necessarily burnout on anyone, but I would certainly wish post-burnout growth on everyone who goes <laughs> through it. <laughs> Yes, yes, 100% that to me, this is this like, one of the biggest changes, I'll say bluntly is, I'm not an asshole to myself anymore. Most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I still have my moments. Mm. but I'm not an asshole to myself anymore. Wow. Even when I sort of fall off, like I, for the first time in years, I had a, a couple of months ago, a moment where I was like, oh shit, I'm going into burnout again. Mm. Holy shit. And when it happened, that was my reaction. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, how interesting. Yeah. The alarm bells went off. You recognized it because you identified what happened. I recognized it, but then I wasn't an asshole to myself about it. Well done. I was just like, oh, that is really interesting that you did that. There's an exercise that I do with clients a lot that's about, you know, looking uh, looking at yourself as if you're your own best friend. We can do it sometimes as a guided meditation or as a written exercise. And I've had clients who, you know, when we start doing this, either will weep because they're just not used to looking at themselves through that kindness lens with that compassionate gaze. Uh, And for others who will simply say, I just, I I can't do this. I I don't know how to do this. This is just not in my comfort zone at all because that critical negative narrative is so hardwired and so online. It's almost 
it's almost scary for them to give up that kind of that 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 sort of highly critical self-talk and switch to something that's actually loving and compassionate it's so foreign yeah but so crucial long term it's yeah and then that's again it comes back to self-compassion that yeah. that's really yeah. a part of a self-compassion practice is to be able to um you know treat ourselves in that really in a humble and and just really kind, nourishing way and looking out for ourselves in the way that we would a, a best friend. Yeah, I love that. Well, if you can believe it, we are at the top of the hour. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but okay, before, talk to you for days. <laughs> right? But before we finish up, I just want to ask if there's sort of a final going away message to the listeners today. If there's something that you like really, really, really need people to hear I think wherever you are in the spectrum of burnout right now, wherever you are, if you are feeling question marks around, maybe I am in burnout, maybe I'm on my way towards one, um, my, I implore you to reach out and talk to someone, whether that is a trusted friend, uh, whether it's a professional, your doctor, someone that you trust. Uh, I'd implore you to talk, just talk to someone and investigate what's going on because we can only change our circumstances and our situations once we acknowledge the reality of what's happening and that can be really scary which is why talking to someone can be helpful because that person can act as a, as a guide and a support and we all need that honestly burnt out or not we need that and if you are stuck not sure who to talk to, don't feel like you can talk to anybody. That's what Fried's Facebook group is for. You will find the link in the show notes. Come hang out with us. There's 600 people in there that have been where you are. Yeah. Right. There's 600 of us. And there's quite a few burnout professionals in the group. And I encourage everybody to answer your questions. So if you feel like, I don't know if this is it, I'm not sure what to do. I feel like I need, I need somebody to give me a first step. Mm. Pop your question in the group. You are definitely not alone. We will hang out with you there. And we've all friggin' been there. Community waiting right there already. I love it. It's winning. <laughs> Sally, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. Everybody go grab Sally's book, Protect Your Spark, and get ready for her next one that is coming within the next few weeks that we are so excited about. Relight, relit, relight your spark? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. I, I don't know why I said lit at the beginning. That wouldn't make much sense, but Relight Your Spark is coming soon. And we're so grateful that you're here. We're so grateful that you are not a corporate finance lawyer anymore. So am I. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Kate. Love your work. Thank you so much. All right, Fried fans, you know the deal. Be good to yourselves, please. Until next time.